welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Welcome to the September 2017 Atlanta Area Intergroup Courtney Speaker Meeting. Uh, today, our speaker is Tracy M. from Macon, and he will be speaking for approximately 40-45 minutes on the subject of the dichotomies of recovery. After that, the floor will be open for questions and feedback to the speaker. During the uh, his talk, I'll pass around the Ask It Basket, which has some uh, index cards and pins in it, and just keep it circulating as he talks so you can write down questions that you'd like to uh, ask of Tracy or feedback you'd like to give uh, on his subject. And so with that, please welcome Tracy M. from Macon, Georgia. I'm Tracy and I'm a recovering sexaholic. And I'm, I'm very grateful to be here this after or this morning. And I'm, I'm also very touched. Phil's not in the room, is he? So I can, I can talk about him. I'm, I'm very touched by his, um, his talk. I, uh, three years ago when I was still God and I, I came to, I came to the meeting up here. I mentioned the interchange that Phil had and I was, and I was still so judgmental and, and I, you know, there was no hope for Phil back then. And, um, so his, his, um, talk today reminded me again that I'm not God and that I shouldn't be judgmental and I don't know what in the, you know, what I'm talking about. So keep that in mind as you listen to me for the next 45 minutes. Um, <clears throat> dichotomies in recovery. This is a word I came across in recovery through a therapist. Um, the word dichotomy means a division or contrast between two things that are or are represented as being opposed or entirely different. Um, it comes from the origin. It's, it's of Greek origin. It comes from the word dico, which means two parts, and tomi, um, which if you're in the medical field, you're f- familiar with appendectomy, means to cut. So two parts to cut. So to cut into two parts. So um, dichotomies of recovery. We'll get. I'll get more into the application of that in in recovery. Um, and what that's meant for me. But really, as I was getting the information together, I recognized that my, my whole life has been a dichotomy. Um, I, I lived two parts of my life. There was, there was the Tracy inside and the Tracy outside. And um, both were presented. So I thought that was um, an appropriate talk. I, I don't want to spend a ton of time on my history or my what it was like because I feel like more benefit is gained by... Um, some of the tools that I've used and um, the, some of the um, conclusions I've been able to come to because of the dichotomies of recovery. But um, first, I, I got off to a really bad start in life. I, I just found out less than five years ago that I was from an older sister that I was actually um, conceived when my father raped my mother. And uh, my mother 
Um, I was the fifth of uh, five children. I was the youngest of five children. My mother, for about a decade, had been trying to escape from my father. Uh, my father, my biological father, was uh, um, alcoholic, diabetic, schizophrenic, sexaholic. And I'm a third-generation sexaholic that I know of. I did not know my great-grandfather, but I'm a third-generation. Nevertheless, my mom was able to escape. She divorced my dad when I was a year old. And um, and then her and my stepfather got married when I was a year old. And, and essentially what my mom did is she was able to find a protector and in, in my stepfather so that she could escape my father and escape the abusive situation she had been in for 18 years. Because my, my biological father would have killed my mother. It would have been one of those situations. In fact, my father did kill my second stepmother. Um, he was, this was back in the 1960s when um, domestic abuse did not occur and the police did nothing about it. But uh, my father said that my stepmother fell on the, di- on the coffee table and went into a coma. And anyway, she died a couple of weeks later. But nevertheless, it wasn't, it wasn't the best of starts. We moved nine times before I turned six years old. Um, that can tear you up. But what it did is it set a pattern of running in my life. It set a template. Um, I wanted to mention uh, templates. Um, I went to drafting school after I went to high school. And we, they were, and some of you have heard the word templates. You may not know exactly what they are, but we used to get these clear green things. They were about this big. And I remember the one I loved the most was the one that had the house parts in it and had the swinging door and it had the, you could make the little toilet over here and the little cooktop with the four eyes and you would take your lead holder and you would lay that template down and, and it, there, there was the toilet again and there was the toilet again. There was a sink. There was a tub, you know. And you just would repeat it over and over again, and it was exactly the same. Well, for all of us, I have found, and for me, my life was a template in the making. And so um, I had to identify all of these elements of my template and the elements that I didn't want to live with anymore. Because what I did in my addiction as I grew up was I put the toilet over here, I put the tub over here, I repeated all of the little template cutouts from my childhood. And um, you need to you need to change your template. I needed to change my template. Um, in the next two, during all this time, I was not getting any attention, um, and it wasn't just a fantasy. I really was an unwanted child. Um, my mom, I mean, they fed me. You know, I got my physical needs met, but I, you know, I felt very incidental, and I felt very unwanted. And as I grew up and found out, well, hey, yeah, I was incidental and I was unwanted. It just reminded my mom of a terrible relationship. And my mom never, ever expressed that. But you get these feelings when you're a kid and you know. Subsequently, I never got any attention, especially from men. My stepfather was busy pleasing my mother, my older brothers. I had teenage older brothers when I was born. They were busy trying to get away from the crazy, you know, so they were doing their lives. Um, in the next to the last place we lived, my older brother sexually abused me, and um, I didn't see that coming. And uh, it um, it was it was pretty devastating to me. The weird part about it was I didn't recognize it as sexual abuse and what it really was for until my forties. I didn't even realize that that it had indeed been sexual abuse. Um, well, I didn't get the attention I wanted to at home, so I learned to perform in school. 
I could get all this attention from these adults in school. Didn't care what the kids thought about me because the kids didn't have any power. The adults had the power. So I was the kid everybody hated because I was the tattletale. I was the teacher's pet. And, and it was all about getting attention from those in authority. And so I would do whatever it took. I would have killed. I was always made sure every year I was the teacher's pet. I would have killed another kid if they got in that position. <laughs> you know, I was going to be the teacher's pet come hell or high water. Um, I grew up in a strict religious home. I'm still a member of that faith. I got married when I was 22 to a wonderful woman that I had dated for four years. Um, I, all of this time I was developing a template of same-sex attraction. I, can, I identified as a same-sex attraction disorder. I do not intellectually believe in it. I also don't religiously believe in it. Um, but yet it's, it was a part of me because I, I was seeking attention from men that I didn't. didn't. So that's what my template was. So the, the dichotomy continued. I was leading this life and I continued to be veering off in another direction. My acting out gradually increased, very slowly in my opinion, very slowly, gradually increased for 40 years. I kept drawing the line in the sand and, you know, crawling over it and getting a new line to make myself feel better. Crawled over that line, you know. But um, it went on for four decades. Finally, in 2012, my my split lives merged. I got discovered and my life imploded. You know, it absolutely imploded. I got disfellowship from the religious organization I was a part of. I got separated from my wife. We later divorced. I got into therapy. I joined SA. I joined a recovery group. I started making friends with men and developing healthy relationships. I've been to several um, international conventions, um, multiple marathons, different workshops, and really worked on changing my template, the template of my life I worked on changing. So whatever it was I was drawing was in the appropriate places and was the appropriate things. And I'm very grateful for that, and, and SA has been a huge part of bringing that to me. And um, I'm, just, I'm just ever so grateful for that. Um, I wanted to discuss specifically four or five different dichotomies of recovery. Um, one that I've, I learned in recovery is the harder we work to hide who we are, the more that shows. Um, I, I call it the spinning plate syndrome. I was spinning so many plates. And when you go to hide yourself even more, you add another plate to spin. And it just, it gets out of control. It, it, it got out of control for me. I, I was really, really good at compartmentalizing. Um, the eventual, uh, uh, I was unfaithful to my wife one time in a scriptural sense, and I knew it when it happened. It took me about six to eight weeks to compartmentalize that and to, to stick it in that drawer and push the drawer shut and to get on with my life and try to live a normal life. Um, unfortunately, we were we had a, a two-week trip to Europe planned, and that didn't go well because I was busy shutting the door, shutting the drawer. And uh, when I disclosed to my wife finally, um, she 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 said it all makes sense now. She said I knew I knew you weren't present when we were there. You weren't present, and. Um, so, uh, even in recovery, if we try to hide from our recovery partners, and you know we think we might be so clever, I 
I considered myself a very successful sex addict. I, I had my house of cards, and I, I was really smart. I glued the seams, you see. And um, I, I, I was very successful in, in hiding for many years, but when you have a house of cards, even with the seams glued, it still collapses because there's, there's no reinforcement there. And it's just like Phil said, it's a, acting out as a lie. And the, the, I was the biggest believer of those lies. I was the biggest believer of my lies. Um, another um, dichotomy in recovery is you can only keep it if you give it away. If, if we're not doing something in our lives, in SA, in the way of service, if we're not being a sponsor, if we're not giving away our recovery to others, we don't have it. We don't have anything to give. And it, to, for me, it's critical that we give it away, that we participate, that we are helping other people in recovery. We're helping other people to recovery. And sometimes part of that is just attending meetings. Um, coming to meetings is so important. Um, and just, you know, um, I believe the White Book makes mention about if the, if you don't, if the mind doesn't want to go, just bring the body. Just, just bring the body. And, and perhaps it will change. But you, we're here where we need to be. I'm here where I need to be. And um, I think about that. And it's crazy um, how, it's just crazy. I've never ever, uh, I've never ever left a religious service that I regretted going to. I've never ever left an SA meeting that I regretted going to and thought, you know, that was just a waste of time. What in the you know, it's going on in there. I've never, ever done that. Never. I mean, never even come close to it. And I'm in group once a month now with my recovery group. And, you know, I'll start whining two or three days before. And there's another buddy of mine that sometimes we drive together now because we ended up merging into the same group. And we'll talk about not wanting to drive to Atlanta and going to that group. And never have we ever been to that group and left and thought, I just wasted money and time. But you know, it's that it's that addict coming on board, trying to trying to get me into that easier, softer way. You don't have to do this. This you can do this, and it's so much easier, and it'll make you feel better. And it's almost like Phil said, it's it's Jekyll and Hyde existing in you, you know, going back and forth, and it's it's truly a constant battle. I know that it it has been for me. Um, for those of you who are married in recovery, um, abstinence gets you better and more sex. Um, it's the the white book um, talks about abstinence so frequently and it's it and being non married it's just funny to look to look at other married members and they don't want to do the you know the ninety days or the sixty days or thirty days, whatever. You know, they don't want to do it and you know, and you, you couldn't talk them into it for the world. But you know, probably as a sex addict, if you don't want to do it you should, whatever it is. <laughs> you know, there's the, the thing in the um, blue book, the big book, about, you know, we'd be better off going up to the the homeless person sleeping on the on the um, bench, the park bench, and asking them what our next, you know, we have all these things going on in our minds. And, and for me, the first thing I don't want to do is the thing I should do. And I would be better off. And I don't, especially if I don't give myself time to talk myself out of it. So um, 
it, it, just a side point, I know the Bible is not conference-approved literature, but just for the abstinence things, we, know, we do know how long the Bible's been around. Abstinence is recommended in the Bible, not just from sex, <laughs> you know, from food and from other things. And I think there's many religions that um, have, um, 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 I, I guess, you, would, you know, a period of abstinence from eating different things. I mean, so it's not a new concept, and it's not something that the White Book thinks you should try because it might work. It absolutely, positively works every time, every time. And I've never, and I've, I'm limited in the number of people that I know that about their sex lives with their wives, but I've never known anybody who did it and said it was the worst thing we ever did. Everybody that does it, it's the best thing they ever did for their marriage. So, what's wrong with us? Why do we talk ourselves out of these good things? And, you know, and there's so much evidence. You know, it's like getting, being sick and going to the doctor. And then he gives you a prescription and you get it filled and you sit it on your counter at home and you don't take it. You know, there's, there, what's wrong with that picture? There's, it's very wrong. Um, as an addict, I thought, I always thought, Hiding who I was would make people like me more. If you hide, and that's why you hide, because if they really knew what I was like, they wouldn't like me more. Well, guess what? That's not true. The honesty that you get, the intimacy that you get from exposing yourself, that leads to more intimacy. Being in this group and telling, the first time I got 12 stepped in Macon, we, um, if you want to come to a meeting, you know, we text or we email you back and forth and you, we have a pre-meeting before the meeting because we have such a small group and we meet with a potential candidate to verify them and introduce them to the program and answer any questions they have. So it's a little bit different than what you guys do up here. But when I when I sat in on my first 12-step meeting and, and these guys were talking about, this one guy was talking about cross-dressing and one guy was talking about masturbation and you know, child uh, child molestation and all that kind of stuff. And I was just like, what? This, you know, I'm in a room talking with people about stuff you're not supposed to talk about. But the honesty that was there, and the and I knew immediately in that first meeting, I knew these guys had something that I wanted. I knew that they had something that I wanted. So um, hiding ourselves from others is not healthy and it does not contribute to recovery. For me, it, it, it does not contribute to recovery because I did write the opposite for so many years. Um, now, I left my cell phone at Mike's apartment, and so I was going to use it as a prop, but everybody knows what cell phones look like. And, and uh, Phil alluded to it, but in my opinion, cell phones are the best and the worst things that have ever happened to sex addicts. The cell phone. Because... Now we can immediately call somebody if we're on our way to Nashville to act out. Now we can immediately, but it, guess what else you can immediately do? We, we know how good the cell phones work for that, and the, the industry has made it work. You can access porn better and quicker than you can call your mother. And they've made, they've made sure that it works that way. And um, so the cell phones are just great for us, but they have to be used in the right way. It's just like with nuclear energy. You know, the man finds out about splitting the atom and, you know, he, he starts making power with it or, you know, electricity. 
And he starts killing people with atom bombs. It's the same thing. It's what you do with it. As to whether it's beneficial. It's just like with television. Television's great. But if you're looking at the wrong things, it can be detrimental. It can be destructive. It can be deadly. Um, the The 300 pound phone. I think most of you are advanced in your recovery. When I have sponsees and they talk about they don't want to, you know, call. They don't want to call other people. They don't want to call me. It has nothing to do with the phone. It has nothing to do with the um, the weight of the phone. It's all about what's in here and what's in here for that person. If if you won't make phone calls, you are narcissistic, you are prideful, and you're a know-it-all. Because you have come into these rooms wanting recovery, and then you want to invent your own way of recovery. So it has nothing to do with the intimacy factor. It has everything. In fact, I wanted to read a um, on page 59 in the white book. It's, it quotes from the, um, and maybe you can share this with your, um, with some of your sponsees. But on page 59 of the white book, it, it's it's actually quoting um, the appendix in of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it says, "Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery." So. You've got to be willing to make the phone call. You've got to be open-minded enough to believe that it's going to help you, even if you don't believe it's going to help you. You've got to be open-minded enough to think that it's going to help you. And you have to be honest with yourself that you need the help. See, it's an act of humility to reach out in a way that you don't want to, to receive the help. And that's why making phone calls is so important. And it's so when I have sponsees who have trouble making phone calls, and I tell them, I say, well, you don't have to make phone calls. You know, and I say, where where did you hear that you made phone calls, that you had to make phone calls? And they said, well, you said it, and we hear it at the meetings. And I said, well, what were you doing there? You know, what what did you come to the meeting for? And I'm not trying to be childish with them or intimidate them or treat them childish, but I'm trying to get their brain brain thinking in the right direction that they came to the meeting for recovery and then they want to come into the meeting, sit for an hour, embarrass themselves, telling all this acting out that they've done, and it's hard to make phone calls? You know, and you just told the group that you masturbated last night? And you can't make a, you know, it's essential to your recovery. And you want to come in and say, but I can't make phone calls. You know, it, you got to grow out of that. That's very childish and wanting to be, wanting to have your way. It's, it's very, very, um, and I do consider it very um, narcissistic and very um, prideful to not make phone calls. And if they can look at it from the right standpoint, then it'll help them to make phone calls. And during my recovery process, I was, I had a goal of, making three calls a day and then I told my recovery group that my wife had said because my wife and I tried to patch things up for about nine months but it just wasn't happening because neither of neither of us were in recovery and uh, so my my um, group said well what's your what's your recovery plan for this new pressure that you're going to have of going through a divorce you know what what are you going to do extra for recovery and of course I didn't. I didn't have anything extra. I mean, I, you know, was I going to read the white book faster or more or what? You know, I didn't. I was just going through a divorce. 
But that was just in my ignorance. And so they came up with the goal of making six phone calls a day instead of making three. And I said, okay, I can do that. Well, it was better than and greater than and more than twice as good to make twice as many phone calls during that time period. And it was exactly what I needed during that time period. And it was the only thing that helped me to get through that time period. And... um now, we, when people are going out of town, you know, we, I, I ask sponsees or people in the group, they're going out of town, what's your, what's your recovery plan? You know, how are you planning on bookending, you know, checking into the motel and being in the motel room by yourself? What are you going to do about that? So, so planning ahead for these um, times in our recovery when we know we're going to be triggered. We know that we're going to be re-triggered. I had to... Um, um, when I would leave my group therapy sessions from Atlanta and drive back home to Macon, there was a, a rest area just south of Forsyth that I used to act out in. And I, I would have to get in the far left lane, call somebody five miles before I got on the, was going to pass the rest area and keep them on the phone and say, look, dude, I'm fixing to pass this rest area. You know, I'm still in the far left lane. I need to talk to you. You got to talk me through this. And I needed that over and over again. And then it got to where, I didn't have to get in the left lane. And now I can pass that place without calling anybody. But the point being is you've got to do what it takes. You've got to do what it takes. I had to do what it took for me, whatever it was, to make it in recovery and to, to, to avoid those trigger points. And to, um, to this day, I do not walk down the magazine aisle at the grocery store. So I won't see the front covers of the magazines because they can be a trigger for me. And uh, if I have to get um, soap powder or liquid soap or whatever, you can. There's a thing you can do in the grocery store. You can enter the aisle from the other end <laughs> without <laughs> without passing the magazines. And um, but that's important, and I, I don't feel comfortable enough that I'm going to be okay enough that I can walk by the aisle right now. And, and that's okay. I don't have to. I don't ever have to walk by a magazine rack the rest of my life. I can't go into Barnes & Noble. I can't go into a bookstore. Um, I don't need to. I don't need to. I've, I've been able to, to make it. I've been able to make it. So for me, whatever it took... Um, just like with the with the phone, whatever it took. Let me tell you, I was so desperate and so broken when I went to my first SA meeting. If I had gone in there and every one of those guys had had a chartreuse T-shirt on, I would have said, "Where's my? How can I get my T-shirt? I, I need the shirt. You know, what do I need to do?" I I noticed that the, all of the guys had book bags. Well, the next SA meeting, I came up with my book bag because I knew I was going to get some baggage. And I, and I did. I got some baggage. I got the books. And, and I still to this day show up. But it was, it was monkey see, monkey do. And whatever the successful people are doing, I needed to do it. Because I wanted what they had. And I couldn't reinvent the wheel. I couldn't reinvent the wheel and say, well, let's try this. Let's do this. It's, Somebody else, the wheel was invented. And I tell you, I'm, I'm a very religious person. I've got a lot of um, religious knowledge. I have studied religion my entire life. And I've read lots of books. And I, this is just an opinion. 
I do not believe that the white book is inspired of a higher power. But I do believe that it is the closest man-written thing I've ever seen to being inspired by a higher power. To think that there's this many pages and there's so little contradiction in this book and that it can be so beneficial to the lives of other people with a problem that the world still considers, or as um, Art calls them, the earthlings, as the earthlings still consider to be so new, and, you know, the world still sex addiction. It's, I, don't know, I don't know about that yet. And, but, I mean, we're living proof that, that we can recover, and we're living proof, I'm living proof that sex addiction is real and that there is hope for it and that there is help for it. And here, the majority of the world is trying to decide whether or not to believe in it or not. But that's okay. They'll get where they need to get when they need to get there. But um, the, the white book is just, is just really, really um, a wonderful thing. If you don't make phone calls, I've never known anybody to recover without making phone calls. Now, y'all may, and if you do, please introduce them to me. But I've never known anybody that recovered. I never have known anybody that recovered that did not get a sponsor. Now, they may have been in the program five years without a sponsor, and they may have been sober, but there's a difference in not acting out and recovery. I'm not talking about ceasing from acting out, which is super important, but there's a difference because the next thing after recovery is thriving. Recovery is just getting you to a baseline. Thriving is when you start going up, and this program offers that. This program offers the upper trajectory of thriving in life. But you've got to go through the steps. It's, um, there's not an easier, softer way. Um, I haven't talked as much as I um, probably could have or should have, but I did want to leave this in closing. Um, you have to be an essay to get out of essay. And what I mean by that is you have to be in Sexaholics Anonymous to get out of your sex addiction. So that too can be considered a dichotomy. I'm Tracy and I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. Thanks. All right. Uh, now it's time for uh, group participation. In participation, we avoid topics that can lead to dissension or distraction. We also avoid explicit sexual descriptions and sexually abusive language. Uh, limited crosstalk is allowed to let members share how the speaker's story affected them. We share with emphasis on applying the steps and principles of essay in our own lives. Appropriate sharing means keeping the focus on ourselves, speaking of our own experience and about those issues. The meeting the your questions are going to be recorded so if you don't want to be recorded you can participate by simply listening so anybody who wants to come up and uh, share after uh, from what Tracy has said please come up and sit in this chair and Tracy if you'll pass the microphone over here to me I'll put it next to the speaker so we'll we'll uh, open the floor for sharing for approximately 30 minutes and so now the floor is open to share. My name is Terrell, and I am a sexaholic. Terrell. Um, um, 
I uh, wanted to let you know I am the childish, prideful narcissist that you mentioned. And, um, uh, you know, I, I need to pray to my higher power for the willingness to let those things go. Uh, and um, um, I needed to hear that because I'm, I'm in my head way too often. And in my head, I, I get to make the rules and, and I'm the uh, 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 I'm the last authority on everything. Um, that being said, um, I did want to ask you, you, it appeared that you had some more points that you were going to share about the dichotomy of recovery. Um, I don't know if that was the case, but um, if, if that is the case, could you share on what those uh, other tools were that you used? Yeah, I'll, I'll be happy to. Um, thanks, Terrell. I appreciate the um, inquiry. One thing, I'm, and I'm, I touched on it, is for me, if I don't, if I don't want to do it, I probably need to. Um, if I don't think about it much and it's just like, eh, it probably is, eh. But if I really don't want to do it, I need to do it. Um, for me, um, having same-sex attraction disorder, I had to, I had to force myself. I, I get along great with women. Women love to talk to me. I can be intimate with a woman in five minutes. Um, and I don't mean sexual intimacy. I'm just saying we can just be, and, and I just, I've been that way my entire life because I got attention from women and I know what women like to hear and what they like to say. I'm also a huge manipulator. And, um, and women like to talk to men because most men don't want to talk to women, you know, and they, they, so the women, well, women will take intimate, any intimacy they can get from any man, um, I, verbally. I don't mean, I'm not, but anyway, uh, so I guess in a sense you could say I know what women want, <laughs> but um, I had to force myself to get over my same-sex attraction disorder. I had to force myself to take that same approach with men. I had to force myself to um, talk with men. I didn't like talking with men because men wanted to talk about their job or they wanted to talk about sports. And I'm not probably not real, real interested in either one. So one thing I did um, in my um, religious faith, we have two meetings a week. I started, I had a goal. I had to speak to five male members in the, in the church before or after the meeting. It, it, was, it was a requirement that I, I mean, for my personal requirement. So those hard things that we really, really don't want to do. And I still have to purposefully make myself do that. Because it's so much easier. It's just my template, if you will, just to get into a conversation with a woman and talk to her for 20 minutes. And um, so one of the a big red flag for me is when I don't want to do it, I probably need to. Because that's my addict telling us, telling me, let's don't go there. Now, what that's brought to me is realizing there's a greater depth to men than I thought you know, it's, it's really sort of weird because I had the same attitude toward men that a lot of men, uh, the, you know, with heterosexual attraction have toward women. 
you know, they, they don't want to talk to women. They just want to sleep with them. You know, um, I read a book by Judd Hurst called The Dark Side of Camelot. And it was, it was all about the Kennedys. And it said that when uh, JFK would walk into a room that all the men wanted to be him and all the women wanted to sleep with him. He was just that charismatic because that was his template. And I'm not promoting or demoting the Kennedys or whatever. I'm just saying it was an interesting book, but that was his template. And that's the effect he had on others. And so there's there's a template between the male and female interaction, especially with, um, um, well, both ways. It goes both ways in sex sex addiction. And so we we have to make ourselves, whatever our attraction is, we have to make that, instead of being an object of attraction, we have to make that person be a real person and not an object of attraction. So, um, like I said, one of the hugest red flags for me is if I don't want to do it, I, I probably really, really, really need to do it, and I really know it's going to be hard. And uh, and that's a, that's a dichotomy of, of recovery for me. Thanks. My name's Jordan T, and I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. Hey, Jordan. I can't believe you didn't cry. <laughs> Tracy, um, my first meeting was at your house, and uh, I love you so much. It's so awesome. I, uh, I've been sober for about two and a half years. I've been in the program for more than twice that long. And I owe my recovery a huge debt to you. Um, and I want to take the opportunity to compliment you on the fantastic life that you've lived in this program. And I know the... Uh, Building healthy relationships with men is something you've always wanted your whole life, and it's something that's been a big part of your program. And as one of the guys who's got to benefit the new Tracy, you know, from the new Tracy, it's just been phenomenal. And I want to compliment you on that publicly and just say it's great. I love you to death. Um, another thing I appreciate about your talk was your attitude of doing whatever it takes. Um, the, I've heard you tell the story about driving past the rest stop many times, and that story is very powerful because there are, there are so many things in your story that I parallel in my own recovery when I had to drive through a college campus to get to work every day. And um, talking to you or my sponsor or another member on the phone as I could drive through that campus is very similar to what you're talking about, staying in the left lane. And um, I just really appreciate that detail of your story. So I, I'll end with a question. Um, when, as a sponsor um, in a small program in, in the Macon Group in Middle Georgia, um, how, with your personality um, and your recovery and, and how you're doing in your program today, how do you deal with new people that come and go through your life, specifically with sponsees that you start with that fall off the radar to try it again. And I'll, uh, I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. <laughs>
thanks, Jordan. Thank, thanks for the compliment and love. It's, it's, it has startled me since I've been in recovery um, how many people do come and go. A lot of people come and go than the stay, way more. And um, for me, I've come to appreciate once I was able to extract myself from that judgmental attitude, I've come to appreciate that if we have a person that's interested that thinks they might be a sexolic and they come to one meeting and then they don't come back, probably they just haven't reached their bottom. But that was a gift to me. It was a gift to me, that one meeting that they attended, because it reminded me that there but for the grace of God go I. That I could have done that. I could have done, and I can still do that. I cannot go to another essay meeting for the rest of my life. But do I want the consequences? Do I want the what's going to happen to me if I don't? That's what I have to ask myself. And I've had sponsees, like you're saying, you know, and they'll be so religious about calling, and then it's just like they fall off the face of the earth, and you can't even you can't get in touch with them. You feel like they've moved to another planet. And um, but what I've grown to appreciate is that when the contact is there, to love it and to love them. And to be glad that you have somebody that you can help and that you have something to offer them. And they may not take it with them, but one thing I've learned in my faith and in SA, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so that person may not have reached rock bottom. Um... They might reach rock bottom in 20 years, but they will remember that you cared about them. And so that's what I try to, I try to not focus on what they don't do or what they're not doing, but focus on what they do. Thanks. I'd like to read a question from the Ask It Basket. How has your relationship with God evolved from pre-recovery to now? Share specific things you do or have done as part of that evolving relationship with God. Thanks. That's a great question. I've always believed in God, um, I'm, in, and I don't mind. I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Um, we believe that the, well, the, the Bible teaches that Jehovah is God's name. Uh, the Lord's Prayer says, um, "Hallowed be Thy name." I mean. So we put emphasis on God's name. We also believe in Jesus Christ. And he's always been there for me. I was the roadblock. My, I, I never had difficulties identifying my higher power. I knew him by name. <laughs> you know, he, he was always there. He never changed, and he never will change. His standards, ne- it doesn't matter what humans do, my God's standards are never going to change. My God's never going to endorse people marrying people from other sexes. He's not going to ever endorse people marrying their pets. He's not going to do it now. He's not going to do it in a thousand years. That's my God. I don't know about everybody else's God. So the stability of my God has been such a reinforcement to me. And recognizing the roadblock was there, he didn't put it there. I put the roadblock. It was, it was a roadblock to my heart. And I wouldn't let him in because I wanted a miraculous rescue. I didn't want recovery. So my relationship with God has increased tremendously. Um, some of the specific things that have happened is I'm, I have 
before I, I prayed to God for what I wanted and what I needed. And now I pray for what he wants for me and what he needs for me to do. So I'm a, le- a lot less egocentric and self-centered in my prayers to God. Um, my conscience, the, um, the word conscience means co-knowledge. It's, it's, um, and it's knowledge of oneself. And everybody has a conscience. We're all, um, we're all born with a conscience. And even in, um, even Aborigines, you know, even people in the, um, humans all over, they don't even know Christ or the Bible or anything. They know it's wrong to steal. They know it's wrong to sleep with your neighbor's wife. They know murder is wrong. Well, that, that's their God-given conscience. And, um, or their higher power-given conscience. So, my conscience, being cleaner and clearer now has opened up. It has removed the roadblocks to my relationship with God. I, I feel like my prayer is freer. I don't feel like God didn't listen to my other prayers, but I know He didn't do anything about them because I wanted Him to do something for me that I wasn't willing to do for myself. You've, you've got to give God, you've got to give your higher power something to work with. You've, you've got to, you've got to um, put your feet in the water. The, the priest, the Israeli, the Israelite priest had to put their feet in the Jordan River before he, he separated the waters there so they could go across. So you've got to show evidence of your faith in him before he'll do something for you. That's the way my God treats me. So, um, it's never changed as far as my identity of God and there was never any confusion and I'm very grateful for that. A lot of people, I'll, I'll share this with you and, and I don't mean to be haughty, but, uh, <laughs> I got disfellowshipped from my religious faith because we have a disciplinary practice that we do when people unrepentantly continue to act in a certain way. Well, that's critical and crucial because I was trying to be a Jehovah's Witness or acting like a Jehovah's Witness, but I wasn't a Jehovah's Witness because I was doing stuff Jehovah's Witnesses don't do. So I got disfellowshipped. Well, what being disfellowshipped means is you can still attend the meetings, but you can't your relatives who are Jehovah's Witnesses cannot talk to you. Nobody in the congregation can talk to you. You can have no association with anybody in your religious organization. It's a protection for them, and it's also it was very beneficial to me because guess what? That was a plate I didn't have to spin anymore. I didn't have to spin that plate. That plate was taken away from me, and it should have been. Because I wasn't doing a good job spending that play. Now, a lot of people are like, oh, I can't believe, you know, and you read articles in the paper and all that kind of stuff. Well, let me just say this. We don't believe in hellfire. The Christian God of most Christian religions teaches that their God is going to burn you in hell forever for sinning. I think your friends not talking to you is a lot better than burning in hell. <laughs> so, I'll just tell you that. Um, and I'm not trying to get into a religious conversation. My point about it is... It, 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 was a, it was a loving kindness. No discipline at present seems joyous but grievous, but those who have been trained by it, it yields peaceable fruit, namely righteousness. So it was terrible. It was terrible what happened to me. But it was the best thing, another dichotomy. It was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I didn't have to spin that plate anymore. So I have a sponsee right now. He's a religious leader in, in his um and he's, he's having a struggle 
But see, he, he's got to get himself right before he can have anything religiously to offer to other people. He hasn't come to that conclusion, and I haven't told him that, but he, he needs to step down from being a minister, and he needs to get himself well, in my opinion, uh, because that's, you don't have anything to offer other people. So you've got to get real in your, in your spirituality. Your spirituality has to be real. And it can't be your idea. It's what your higher power's idea is for you. I hope that answers your que- the, the question. Hey, everybody. I'm Justin. I'm a sexaholic. Hey, um, I've really appreciated these shares. I had a, um, I really could relate to this thing about spinning the plates. I like that concept. Um, that's me in a lot of ways. I tend to overexert myself and have a lot of busyness in my life. Um, and I think it's very intentional uh, from my addict to try to keep me from working on my recovery, from trying to focus on uh, having energy to connect with others meaningfully, to work on my defects, to be honest. Um, I was curious about what's been revealed to you um, about what those plates were in your life and how that Moving into recovery, you've been able to put some of those plates down. Um, I'm still in, in the battle of my um, uh, boundaries, if you will, defining what those healthy boundaries are, structure for my recovery. And I'm working with my therapist on that, which has been really meaningful. But it's, in, it's very helpful for me to be able to hear what other people did um, and what worked for them. So that's what I got. Thanks, Justin. I appreciate it. Appreciate the commendation. That's a that's a really good question, and <laughs> I don't want to make it to the answer to, it's too simple. But probably just about everything you're doing in your life right now is a plate. Honestly, I and I identify so much with what you're saying. I was such an overachiever. I, I was an overachiever in my faith. Why? Because I got commendation. I got attention. I, w- I was an attention hog. And when I wasn't overachieving for attention, I was overachieving to run. You know, if, if I have to go do this for this person, I won't have to face Tracy in the, in the dark. You know, oh, I don't, have time to, I don't have time to fix that part of myself. And then I would sprinkle in acting out, you know, all along with everything I was doing because I couldn't face myself. And um, so I'm, I'm a very, very different person now. I take mental health days from work. Um, I mean, I call them mental health. I'm self-employed, but it's a day when I'm not going to make money. And I just, I just fart around the house all day and just do whatever. If I want to watch Oprah and Price is Right, I just do whatever I want to do. And, and that, is, that is true overachieving, staying home and watching Oprah. Or, you know, whatever you want to watch it. I'm just saying, in the past, there's so many things that I wouldn't have done in the past. Um, you know, just that, but I had to get rid of, one of the plates was perfectionism. Oh my God, I was such a perfectionist. And I recently um, um, worked with my nephew. My nephew got transferred with his job. He, list, he used to live in Marietta and he got transferred back to Macon. And, and he, so we were fixing up a house for him um, down there for a few weeks. And, and he, he is so much like me. I just pray he's not a sex addict. But he is such a perfectionist. And he's about 34 years old. And he, um, 
And I was working with him. We were working on these projects that, you know, and I'm like, it's good enough. Just leave it like that. It's good enough. You know, and he, no, he's got to get it just right. You know, and I thought, man, it occurred to me for the first time how annoying perfectionism is to others. And I thought, man, there's a whole new list of amends I've got to make to other people because I never knew. But, you know, and so perfectionism was one of them, um, overachieving, working too much. See, the thing, the thing about working too much is everybody endorses it. You know, and society says it's okay. Your wife may not like it, but she likes the money. Um, you know, so it's okay. But see, what are you taking yourself away from? You're taking yourself away from God. You're taking yourself away from your children. You're taking yourself away from um, your wife, that close, you know. So um, I, I don't work near as hard as I used to. I have less money, especially since I pay alimony. But... I, you know, I don't work as hard as I used to, and and I have to intentionally do that. I have to intentionally say, it's okay, it's okay, it's good enough. Um, I, I, I try to focus more intimately on individuals and not... Like spread the love everywhere, you know, like, and, you know, just have a little bit of time for a lot of people. I try to have more pockets of time for fewer people, if, if that makes sense. I don't need to be liked by everybody. I don't have to make everybody happy. Um, um, people pleasing was a plate. Um, you know, if, if everybody likes you, there's something wrong with you. Because every, that's not right. <laughs> because everybody's not, and somebody's going to not like you, even if they're wrong. They're still not going to like you. So, all of those things um, were, were plates in my life. Um, but I would say, I would probably say the and self care. Oh my Lord, I'm done such a ninety degree or one hundred eighty <laughs> degree change in self in self care. My wife used to have to beg me to go to the doctor and beg me to do this. And, well, see, she's not there anymore to beg me. And um, so I'm, I'm working on, which is part of being a man and is part of being a human is taking care of yourself. So that was, that was something I had to start focusing on and not um, the self-care. I hope that was of help to you. Oh, the one thing I was going to say in this country is working too much, working too much, working too much. Americans already, we work more hours per week than any other country in the world. We're, and we're so much less successful at it. More hours doesn't mean better. That's why I buy Japanese automobiles. And to think that the overachieving, perfectionistic, mathematical Japanese, and that was said with a lot of prejudice. <laughs> I like I liked the Japanese. But I'm just saying, you know, you would think... Well, these people, they're so great at what they do. Surely be to God, they put in more hours a year than we do. But it's, it's ridiculous what this country has become as far as the workforce and how much stinking time. In Europe, when you start a job, you, the first year you are there, you get 30 days of holiday. The first year you are there. Here, you have to work there 40 years to get four weeks vacation. It's, it's, it's preposterous. We work too much. We work too much, and it's endorsed because it's considered successful. So you're young enough to have a real impact on not working so stinking much <laughs> in your life. Thanks. Uh, another question from the Ask It Basket. 
What is your daily program for spirituality, prayer, and God? Great question. Um, in, in the Norcross meeting, I was trying to remember what meeting it was. In the Norcross meeting, I used to go to my therapist and then I'd go to a Norcross meeting um, right afterwards since her place was right down the street. And um, a few times I would do it. I didn't do it a whole lot. But anyway... I was really down. I was having a real struggle. I was suffering from depression. Um, and I went to the North Cross meeting, and there's some guy, and I don't even remember who it was. Mike might remember. And uh, he said that he gets up every morning and does a sobriety renewal phone call at 5.30 in the morning with another recovery partner. And and he talked about how life-changing it was for him. And I thought... Oh, my God, that's exactly what I need. And then I got to thinking in my overachieving attitude, I'm like, and you wouldn't have to limit it to one person. Why couldn't you get three or four people on the phone and just do a conference call? And in uh, my brain just, and I went up to him, and he gave me this list of the questions they ask each other and all that kind of stuff. And um, so it was just, you know, I, so I went back, I got... I got four or three other guys to commit to this for 30 days, Monday through Friday, 6 o'clock in the morning. We do a conference call, and I got these, you know, all four of us were from Macon. And uh, it was it was just great. I mean, it gave me, for a lot of mornings, it gave me a reason to get up, get up out of bed. Well, two of the guys dropped out. They were younger, and they just couldn't get up that early. Anyway, they didn't drop out of the program. They just dropped out of the recovery call, you know. They just weren't morning people. And I was just really down and out about it. And so I asked a, a couple of the guys in my group if they would like to join. Well, all right, my point about that is it's just an amazing thing. So we've been, what, three and a half years? We're, we're three and a half years into it. Uh, every morning at 610, we dial this conference number with a code. We have a book that we do and it's usually one of those little um little recovery books that has a daily you know but anyway that's the beginning of my spiritual program for recovery in the morning is my recovery conference call then i have periods of bible reading or spiritual reading during the day i generally try in my faith we have a daily thing i generally try to do that faith-based daily reading immediately after that bible reading and it's only it takes like less than five minutes and then on monday night i have a home bible study with myself um that i where i read the bible and read spiritual publications doing homework for the meetings we're going to have for that week um I've been praying for, to have Bible studies with other people. As y'all know, we go out in the door-to-door ministry work. And I'm, I'm happy to say that because of my recovery and because of my honesty with God, I now have three Bible studies with three men. We call them home Bible studies where you go to their home and you study the Bible with them. And I'm, I'm just overjoyed because to see the spiritual resurrection of somebody when you study the Bible with them, or or it's just like people recovering from SA. I mean, you know, it's like they were thinking this way, and then they start thinking this way, and they make changes in their life, and it's like, oh my God, this is wonderful. So I'm all of that, and then I have my weekly meetings, which I've never failed to, you know, I've never dropped out of, not just SA meetings, but also my weekly Bible meetings. So I'm I'm very grateful for that. From the Ask It Basket, 
How have you been able to discuss so openly the same-sex attraction without fear of the perceived stigma of our society or even those in SA uh, uh, for men, especially those who identify as heterosexual who have this issue? Great, great question. Um, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable having same-sex attraction. I think it would. So I would like to believe that people who molest children are uncomfortable doing it, and they're uncomfortable with the feelings that are aroused in them, but they can't stop themselves from doing it. I mean, we know they can, but I'm just saying. I, for me to justify that that even occurs, I have to think that there's a struggle going on. I feel the same way about my same-sex attraction, and um, I don't intellectually agree with it, but uh, emotionally, I'm attracted to it. Part of my recovery is making myself at every check-in at an SA meeting to say I have same-sex attraction disorder. It's called SAAD because I'm so good at fooling myself and telling myself I'm okay. And if I don't hear myself say those words and to tell other people, I'll get back into my hidden self. So the, the, the urges, if you will, the disorder has gotten 60, 70 percent better in my life since I've been in recovery. Um, it's, it's unbelievable because I'm getting the emotional connection I need with males now, which is what I was missing all my life. In addition to being sexually abused by my brother, I didn't have any close male relationships in my life. You know, growing up, and, and I had lots of friends, don't get me wrong, but there was no male-to-male intimacy. And so I, I do feel like it's one of those things that needs to be addressed. And I do feel like um, for me to stay sober, I have to remind myself, you know, th- this was a big part of what was going on. This was a big part of, of what was going on. And uh, it helps me to get over it, bringing it out into the light, not pre- shoving it down. And keeping it in the light. I, for my own benefit, I have to keep it in the light. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with it. To me, um, I heard Drew Pinsky, Dr. Drew on TV. Many of you have seen shows he's done. And this is what made me recall that I was abused. And he said, I'm going to get a lot of, a lot of feedback from the LBGT community. He said, but he's been in practice for 30 something years and he had never ever once had a patient who was lesbian or gay that had not been sexually abused. So if you have that problem, if you feel like it is a disorder, the same-sex attraction, there's something that happened to you, and you may not even know what it was, that is the root cause of that. And if you can get back to the core, the, the White Book talks about figuring out why we act out the way we do. What is our template? Uh, it doesn't say template, but you know what, what template was made for you or did you make in your childhood that made you be the way you are today and what can you do to change that template? Um, so I feel like being pragmatic about it and being honest about it helps me to overcome it. So that's why. And I don't feel like you're bad if you have that. Society still feels. I mean, with all the, with all the coming out and the gay pride and all that, you know, you would think society's not ever going to change. Why? Because of the inborn God-given conscience. 
you know, it's never going to be acceptable to everybody. But the the clue is, and somebody said about in the question it mentioned about not what did it mention about not being embarrassed by it or. Stigma of society. Stigma, yeah. Let me tell you something. I care less about what other people think about me than I ever have in my entire life. <laughs> Let me tell you that. And that is a key to recovery, too. I care less. I mean, I care less. But the you would think that with everything that's going on, you know, that, that it, you know everybody would be okay with it. Humans are not going to ever be okay with it. Just like... Humans are not ever going to be okay with war. But guess what? They're going to still keep fighting. You ask everybody on the streets, you know, 95% of everybody, war is terrible, war is terrible. But humans have been fighting since Cain killed Abel. I mean, you know, the, the point being, you have to be honest and you, you, have to, you have to understand something happened to me that made me this way and I can do something about it. That's the way I deal with it. Thanks. Two questions from the Ask It Basket on the same subject, so I'll just read them both. What is the format for calling? What do we share? How do I get the most out of phone calls? The most beneficial phone calls are when I'm tempted, but what if I'm not particularly tempted at the moment? How should I approach the phone calls? Great questions. Great questions. First of all, you have to make a pattern of doing phone calls so that when you need to make a phone call, you will. So you, you make phone calls whether you need to or not. You make it a regular pattern of making phone calls. Um, I always tell my sponsees, when you call somebody, you get their voicemail, you say, hey, this is Tracy, I've, I've had a good day or I've had a little bit of a struggle today, I'm feeling really sluggish, I just got triggered. You know, you give them a little brief thing of whatever's going on in your life, and then you, for that day, and, you know, I hope your day's going good, I've been thinking about you, I appreciate the share you had last, you know, and then you just close it out. Always leave a good message. Even if you're calling because you really need help right then, because you hearing yourself say those things helps you. Even if the person's phone is screwed up and they never get that message, that leaving that message helped you. Because, guess what? You were thinking about somebody else and not your own sorry ass. <laughs> so, it, it helps. So do it. Just just do it. I had a, I had a case. It, it reminded me of a case. I, I, I went to, we had a 12-step meeting before the meeting with a newcomer. It was great. We had a great essay meeting. Just great essay meeting. So I leave and I go to Kroger and I had a couple of new sponsees. And, I mean, life just couldn't have been better. Just Life was just going great. I'm, I'm at my favorite Kroger in Macon. I have a favorite Kroger in Macon. It's, unfortunately, it's not near my house. But it is near the meeting place. So I'm, I'm walking in Kroger and I'm, I'm walking around and I'm getting, you know, I got a little basket of stuff. And in walks my absolute favorite acting out partner of my entire life. And I just, I went from zero to a hundred and I, I started shaking. I started visibly shaking like I had epilepsy. I mean, it just came out of nowhere. I don't even know if he saw me. I saw him. I don't even know if he saw me. And um, I started following him in the store. And I had acted out in grocery store bathrooms before. So, I mean, that's one thing about um, same-sex acting out and 
um, it, it can happen really. I mean, anyway. So I mean, I mean, I was literally just minutes, if not seconds, away from acting out or, or starting something. And I got back to the deli department, and, and he was headed back to the bathrooms. I don't know. And I, I stopped in the deli department, and I thought, God Almighty, what? I've lost my mind. I mean, and still, I'm shaking the whole time like this. I mean, I guess it was the dopamine that just started. I mean, I was, you know, so I, because I, I was in the checkout line. I got out of the checkout line. So I thought, so I stopped myself at the deli department, walked back around, uh, <laughs> I checked out, and I immediately got on the phone with a sponsee, my, a brand-new sponsee. I mean, I, he hadn't been in the program two weeks. And I said, I said, I called him, and I said, hey, I said, this is Tracy. I said, I really need your help. I said, you know, I said, I'm, I just got triggered really bad. One of the, it was, it's, it's still to this day the worst trigger I've ever had since I've been in recovery. And I said, I'm, I said, I'm freaking losing my mind. And, for, you know, and so he said, where are you at? And I said, I'm at Kroger. And he said, well, first thing, we got to get your ass out of the store. <laughs> like that, you know. And, and it just, when he said that, I was, I just burst into laughter. You know, and I said, well, dude, I'm walking out the door right now. I'm working on that, you know. And he said, he said, no, he said, you're going to, I mean, it was like, he 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 just knew. He, I mean, he'd been in the program two weeks. He knew exactly what to do. Exactly what to say. He said, "I'm staying on the." He said, "I'm staying on the call with you until you get in the car." He said, "When you get in the car, you're gonna, you know." And he he just started telling me this stuff to do. And I said, "Okay, just." I said, "Okay," and um, then he um, and he said, "Listen," he said, "I'm calling you back in five minutes." He said, "I'm going to make sure you didn't turn around," you know. But it's a great call. So. You know, I knew when I was shaking, I needed to call. I needed, and that was because of the pattern. That was because of the good template of making phone calls that I had in my life, and it saved me. It it literally saved me. Thanks. All right, from the asket basket. Can you talk about what is so unique about SA that has allowed you to find true recovery and progressive victory over lust? Thanks. That's a really good question. What's so unique about it is the honesty. I, I've been to AA meetings, and I find the honesty in SA even more honest than AA meetings. Because a, a lot of people that are addicted to drugs and alcohol, they're, you know, they've been fronting all their lives, and they're still trying to front <laughs> And it's just been my, per- and I'm not trying to criticize AA members or, you know, but I'm just saying that the, the core honesty that is in this program. I mean, I'd much rather tell you I got drunk last night than tell you I masturbated last night. Let me tell you, because guess what? There you go back to acceptability. Society accepts getting drunk a lot, and they don't talk about masturbation. So the level of honesty in SA, um, the the level of honesty, we had a we had a guy in our program uh and he he uh, he's been sober three and a half years and i I just have so much respect for this dude he's he's just a wonderful guy and he he looked at porn um he didn't masturbate but he looked at porn and he reset his sobriety date about thirty days ago and um yeah you know, he didn't have to do that he didn't have to and it, it he didn't have to do that based on the white book but he did it because he had to be honest with himself. 
and he had to and so the the core level of honesty i mean you just you're not going to i haven't found it anywhere else and i don't know that i will find it anywhere else but um it's it's phenomenal and that's and by being around honest people it makes me honest with myself and it makes me honest with others because you know one thing they tell um drug addicts when they are in recovery is you got to change your playgrounds and your playmates you got to change the places you go and who you're with and and that's what we do when we come to SA. We change the the places we go and who who we're with. Thanks. Would anybody else like to come up and share ask questions? All right. Well, then please join me in thanking Tracy for uh, being with us today. Anything you've heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participants. The principles of essay are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. This is an anonymous program. Please keep the name, address, phone number, and or email of anyone you meet or learn about an essay to yourself. And what you hear here when you leave here, let it stay here. Remember that we never identify ourselves publicly with essay in the press, radio, TV, or films. Neither does anyone speak for essay. After a moment of silence, uh, why don't we join together and we'll conclude with the third step prayer. for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve. Bye.